0: straight out of the crate, spun a main bearing. So it was smoking like an old chimney. So on the Friday, I've got the engine out of his bike. I'm thinking, how the hell am I gonna do this in the paddock, in a marquee? So I'd raced into the catering tent and asked if I could borrow their, their oven. So I had the engine in the oven to heat up the bearings so I could get the bearings out and new bearings in um, before lunchtime on the Friday.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 98 of the Trials Australia podcast. I'm your host, David Grice. If this is your first time here, welcome. The Trials Australia podcast is a global initiative and we regularly speak to current and former champion riders, local club riders, administrators, event organisers, and people from all around the world. We really speak to anyone who's got a current or a former involvement in the sport of trials. If you're enjoying this podcast, We'd love you to share it with your friends. You can subscribe through your favorite podcasting app and all episodes will be automatically delivered to your device. Also, we welcome you to come join our Facebook group. Search Facebook for Trials Australia Podcast Community and come join the discussion. Before we get into it this week, I'd like to let you all know that the podcast now has its own YouTube channel. It's been a bit of work in the making, but essentially I've built a live streaming backpack. The technology involved of being able to live stream and ride at the same time has not been trivial. And that said, I was very happy with our first run. We did a live stream from the Oakley Motorcycle Club, which is my local club grounds. The links to the YouTube channel are in the show notes of this episode. And I encourage any of our regular listeners to subscribe and set your notifications to all. That way you'll be alerted when we go live in future. I have ambitions of doing some world firsts with this technology and conducting a live stream while actually competing in a trial. It probably won't be a major event, but it'll be a great insight into everything from walking the sections to banter with the other riders to riding as well. Again, the link to our YouTube channel is in the show notes and it can also be found on our Facebook community group. This episode is sponsored by GasGas. GasGas are excited to announce that the 2022 models are now available. The latest generation of txt racing bikes are available in 125 250 and 300 cc capacities gas gas have continued to refine these bikes and the new models are no exception these bikes will come with Olin's rear shock tech forks brake tech brakes Kine carburetor one piece aluminium swing arm michelin tires and of course that renowned class leading gas gas clutch we are a global podcast so please inquire through your local dealers however Here in Australia, the Gas Gas Trials dealers are The Hell Team, Revolution Trials, PTR Trials, Moto Dynamics and Rock Hopping SA. This episode is also sponsored by The Hell Team. As you'll hear in this week's interview with Paul Arnott, the man behind The Hell Team, they are used to dealing with a massive range of bikes. As well as being dealers for Gas Gas, they are importers of TRS and dealers for Beta. But as you'll discover in this interview, They've dealt with pretty much every brand of bike that's been around. They offer a wide range of spares for all makes and models of trials bikes with excellent tech support, either via the tech support pages on their website or via the phone if there's anything you're unsure of. Also, as we're getting closer to Christmas, there may be a little person in your life that needs one of these new TRS 1E 16-inch electric bikes. These little bikes pack a big punch and incorporate a range of the technical features that TRS have previously built into their larger 20-inch version. Get in quick while stocks last. Check them out at www.thehellteam.com. As mentioned, today we are speaking with Paul Arnott, the man behind the Hell Team. I've spoken to Paul about this interview for quite a long time, and it was great to finally get around and do it. Paul was our very first sponsor for this podcast and had absolutely no hesitation in signing up. I've dealt with Paul quite a bit as a consumer from the Hell Team, but so has pretty much everyone else I've met. And there's a fair degree of consistency in the amount of support he gives. We hear about how the hell team got started and maybe some false starts as well with importing bikes thanks to brands not surviving or events like the GFC. We discuss the hectic life of an importer when you're running world rounds and the crazy story of using catering ovens to do a main bearing when you're supporting international riders and far away from a workshop. We talk through the people Paul has met along the way and the relationships that he's built over time and how those relationships have paid dividends when needed. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Paul on behalf of all the riders he's sponsored along the way and in particular helping all the Aussie riders getting over to Europe over the years. I know it really means a lot. Thank you, Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you my chat with Paul Arnott. Paul Arnott. Welcome to the Trials Australia podcast.
0: Uh, Thanks very much, David. Really good to finally talk to you. I think I've (laughs) I've been putting it off for such a long time. (laughs) I really felt like I'm not an athlete. I'm just on the fringe. So I've been pushing away, but yeah, you finally got me. (laughs) You're our first sponsor.
1: I have to chat to you. (laughs) Like you're the one that was the first that put their hand up to say, I will sponsor this podcast and there was no hesitation and you were in like Flynn. And so it's great to chat to someone that's so passionate about the sport whether you're a rider or not it's just good to have someone that's there to help grow the sport help promote the sport and just the work you've done with the hell team i think we need to understand that because it's a big part of the australian trial scene as well yeah
0: i think with trials too there there isn't a lot of money in a lot of sectors so some of the new technologies coming through like what you're doing with your podcast and stuff gets so much information out to other riders through the new media which is so important
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you're a a big consumer of podcasts, I imagine. Huge. (laughs) Yes.
0: Music podcasts, technical podcasts, motorcycle podcasts, general interest, everything. Yeah, love it. Yeah,
1: it's awesome. It is protocol to go back and try and understand though where your journey in trials began. So how did you find trials? Where did it all start?
0: When I was a kid, I grew up around the beaches. So I was surfing, skating, all that sort of stuff. But my family's best friends. A guy I used to call my uncle, but he wasn't my uncle, was a trials rider. So he had a couple of Montessas. He had a Montessa for his son and he used to drag us out to Menai, which was an area close to where we lived and ride bikes. So I rode trials bikes when I was a little kid from probably nine or 10 years old up into my mid-teens. right? Not knowing it was trials really, they were just motorbikes. So we were just out tearing around the bush on them, having a great time. And that got me into motorcycles. So I really didn't touch trials again because, it, you know, we moved away from him. So I rode all sorts of bikes, enduro bikes, road bikes, everything, and didn't really kick back into trials until I was 40.
1: Wow. Okay. So there was a massive gap in there and you didn't even know you were on a trials bike at start. So what was the the catalyst
0: at 40 to resume trials? Like where did that spark come from? I'd, I've Never lost a passion for motorbikes all my life. And when I was 40, my one of my really good friends was such a he was a great rider, ex-pro motocross rider. And he used to take his kids out, his two young boys. And I started going out with him, just hanging out, and wanted to buy myself a bike. But I knew if I bought myself a motocross bike, I'd get into trouble <laughs> riding with him because he was <laughs> such a good rider. So I went hunting and went, oh, I saw a trials bike and went, oh, I remember that. So bought myself a little TLM 260 Honda and absolutely found that passion again and loved it, fell deeply into it. Yeah. There's a lot of, I hear a lot of that.
1: People come and go uh, and that passion never sort of dies. They they may have periods of their life where they can't do trials, but when they re-find that fire or that passion again. It it really is. It it was like it was never gone. Yeah.
0: And I think that thing of how technical trials is and how challenging it can be really gives you something to, you can really see your your self-improvement. You can really analyze it. You can get real joy from it, even just riding on your own.
1: Yeah. So did you start competition straight away or were you more just a social
0: rider at this point with your TLM 260? Pretty close to straight away. I got rid of the TLM 260 pretty quickly and I was riding in the bush just around where I lived and Jess came across two people walking around the bush who happened to be two really good trials riders, which was Michelle Owen and Glenn Crafter. And they said, oh, you should go up to Pacific Park. There's um, some great riding up there. And I uh, Took myself off to Pacific Park and was probably competing two or three weeks later.
1: Oh my God. Yep.
0: <laughs> That's
1: unreal. Yep. And the you're no longer just a competitor at Pacific Park. I think you ended up
0: getting involved with the club and you're, you've been a large part of the club for a number of years. The club was run by a gentleman named Keith Marchant and Sue Ferris, and they did a superb job. They were really great at running the club. But Keith retired and decided to buy a motorhome and travel around Australia. And I sort of got handballed the position, so yeah, <laughs> yep. yeah, put my hand up, and I've been involved as secretary and treasurer and every role over the years. Yeah, absolutely. So
1: describe Pacific Park to the uninitiated, because I'm yet to make it. COVID's really crippled my travel plans, and all I keep hearing about is how awesome and grippy the rocks are, and you could get lost for days and cover 10% of it. So
0: You hear people talking about surfing, and they have to go to Hawaii at like the destination that you have to go to. (laughs) It's the pilgrimage. Yeah. So I think Pacific Park is very much like that. (laughs) It's the Hawaii of trials. Okay. Yeah. It's got everything. It's a very big commercial motorcycle park that has dedicated areas for kids' tracks and enduro tracks and things like that. But probably three quarters of the terrain is trial access only. And just superb. It's just, it's been ridden for a long time. So there's thousands of tracks. There's beautiful, big, grippy sandstone rocks. There's, ev- it's got everything. It's fabulous.
1: Okay. Oh, awesome. Is it, is it good enough to host a world round? Do you reckon?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And the thing about holding a world round is it's not just the terrain. You have to have the support for everything else. So you've got to have access for spectators. You've got to have a lot of parking. You've got to have a lot of infrastructure. So the thing about a world round is it goes way beyond just good terrain. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, we found that when the two rounds were held in Victoria, that the Victorians did such a superb job on at Maldon, Yeah, where you need that big sporting facility. You need all the support of a township. There's yeah. a lot goes on.
1: Yeah, it was pretty amazing as an outsider at the time to the sport. I wasn't really involved in the thick of trials, but what the running of the the two World Rounds in Victoria did for me was cement my certainty that this was the sport for me and it just took a little while to build up the financial kitty to to get into it. But the reason I ask is that I think I did interview Cole Scott, who was the president of TCV at the time, or heavily involved in running the World Rounds for TCV, and he made mention of the fact that Victoria's probably done their dash, and if it was going to be somewhere else, probably if we are hosting another world round, it'd have to be somewhere else. Uh So, Yeah, I think.
0: Those two world rounds just about killed me. (laughs) Really? As the gas gas importer. So (laughs) I don't think I could do it on an admin level and still in the position I am as a bike importer. I I
1: was going to ask you that, because one of the things we've got to cover in this is the support you have for all our riders overseas. But when that must reverse, and you've got a whole lot of overseas riders asking you for support oh my God, yeah, I just dawned on me how much of an event that must be for you. So take me through, what was some of the sort of things that that you dominated those weeks for you?
0: Well, Well, Gas Gas bring one bike for Adam Raga, who was their lead rider at the time, Yeah, but they brought a lot of riders over. Michael Brown came over and there was a whole ton of Gas Gas riders from England and from Spain. Along with their minders and team managers and everything. So I had to supply 18 bikes. So 18 new bikes. Oh my God. And prep those before they arrive. And then even things like once you get into it, you, you, I have to supply the marquees, all the tools, a dedicated toolkit for every team, for every rider. Um, wow. do all the food for them. The organizers organize the accommodation for them. But that was about it. Everything else is my job, even down to the transport. So transporting them to and from their accommodation to the event, that was all organized by us. And then support on the day. So even things like there was a young rider, Tio Col- Calero, who was in the 125 youth class, and his bike straight out of the crate spun a main bearing. So it was smoking like an old chimney. So on the Friday, I've got the engine out of his bike I'm thinking, how the hell am I going to do this in the paddock in a marquee? So I'd raced into the catering tent or the catering unit and asked if I could borrow their their oven. So I had the engine in the oven to heat up the bearings so I could get the bearings out and new bearings in. Oh my so god! Sm- smoking out the kitchen, smelling like oil, and fixing doing a main bearing change um, before lunchtime on the Friday. Holy cow!
1: Holy cow! Yeah, that is insane. <laughs> That is absolutely insane. I imagine though that he did he appreciate the work that went into it. Oh yeah, no, yeah,
0: no, it it was fantastic. It was really great. Taking nothing away from the experience, we were flat out, but it was so fantastic to see so many quality riders and meet all the mechanics and minders and team managers. And yeah, it was really good. Yeah, there was a few
1: long-standing relationships with these people, a lot of them remotely, and then all of a sudden now they're in person?
0: Yeah, a lot of them are known from being over in Spain or being in England at okay. different events, but, but even down to the fact that there was a few little problems. Cole Scott had organized the accommodation for all the riders and things, and then so we ended up having riders staying in Bendigo, in Castlemaine, in four or five different locations yeah, all around oh, the country, oh so God. just trying to even organize getting people to and from the showground was pretty intense yeah. at some stage.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah I can imagine. <laughs> you need a tour bus. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I had my wife, Karen, tearing people around in cars. I had good friends doing mini bus runs. It was quite hectic. Oh, my God. I didn't expect to start down this
1: line of inquiry, but yes, I'm glad I did because it, it, it must, it really does paint a picture of what's involved in a world round. And I note with interest, the FIM have just released the calendar for next year and it's, Without a Spanish round and it's without an English this round, round which yeah, it's the first time, and I, I don't know what's behind that. But when I hear these stories of the amount of efforts involved, it it does strike me as interesting. And I imagine there's only more and more burdens put on organisers over the years since it was last run. Yeah, that it must even be harder still to get a world round up and running.
0: Yeah, so I, don't, I haven't spoken to anyone at the FIM, but it's just such a massive task for the organising club, and you would have seen it organizing stuff for Oakley. It's harder and harder to get volunteers these days. I think that's the biggest hurdle that trials faces into the future is the massive amount of volunteers that you need to put on an event. So I'm sure that's behind it. Yeah, absolutely.
1: The thing, though, going back to your involvement with the sport, so when you rediscovered your Honda TLM and your Pacific Park Club and started competing with, did you instantly – like when did the hell team, the spark for starting the hell team come along and how did it transition from, do you know what, I like riding motorbikes to, do you know what, I'm going to go into the motorbike business and uh-huh. I'm going to go into the trials business. Uh-huh. Take me through that sort of journey. There
0: was two distinct things that sort of happened. I think I worked in the film industry most most of my life and used to import pieces of equipment from Europe for the film industry. So that side of it didn't scare me. So there was a definite hole in the trials industry in Australia where there wasn't any aftermarket things available. You could buy a bike from certain dealers, but there was nothing else you could get. So I started bringing in a few things for myself, and that led to my mate going, can you get one for me? And it was more by osmosis than planning that I started bringing in things like that. Yeah, okay. And then the real key to it was... Probably Don Murray, who's the Australian Sherco importer, you know, during that, those sort of years. He was also the Scorpa importer. And there'd been some friction in the breakup between Scorpa and when Sherco started. Yep. And he couldn't import both. There was some pressure on him from Sherco to just do Sherco. Okay. So he, he, good on Don, he didn't want to just say to Scorpa, sorry, I can't bring your bikes in anymore, he took it on to try and find someone to look after the brand properly. So he said to me, would I be interested in importing Scorper? Okay. And that's how that kicked off. So my first role as a proper trials business was the Scorper importer.
1: Yeah, okay. And
0: that was in 2005. Yeah. the first thing that happened was there was a international event that was put on in Victoria again called the Super Trial. Yeah. So um Gary Greeley was behind that, and there was a whole bunch of um, overseas riders came over, and I think I'd been the Scorpion Porter for about two weeks and was into <laughs> that. So yeah, baptism B- of fire, absolute baptism of fire. Yep. <laughs> oh
1: God, <laughs> I keep yeah. It doesn't strike me as you just you got to think on your feet with these things because there's just so many variables.
0: So and, and I loved it. It was one of those things where suddenly I was. Starting to deeply get involved in trials. And just one thing led to another. And I started to push away from a film industry background and started to really put time into working on being the best trials importer I could. Yeah. Okay. And Oh, wow. And unfortunately, I've had a few hiccups along the way, especially with manufacturers, because I was Scorper importer and that was 2005. And then in 2008, they got into fairly serious financial trouble with the GFC.
1: Of course. So
0: they went under. So 2009, I was left without a bike to import. So I was searching around and the only thing really available was this new brand out of Spain called Chispa. And they were a little kids bike manufacturer who decided that they could build a trials bike and they were going to get a lot of parts sourced in um, China, I think in Taiwan and try and produce a bike that was a thousand or $2,000 cheaper than what everyone else was doing, which was a pretty good business model, but it didn't work. <laughs> people were, I think people decided they'd rather buy a year old Sherco or a year old Gas Gas right. than buy uh, an, unknown an unknown quantity. quantity. Yeah. So right. I was importing Chispa, but it wasn't well-received by the market, and there were some issues with it, and there were some legal issues because I think they copied a fair bit of Sherco's IP. Right. So from there, I was like, ah. And thank God things fall into place, but the Australian gas-gas importer, Mel and Jill Loon, who'd been looking after gas-gas for 10 years, decided that they'd had enough. They yep. wanted to retire and kick back. So Mal approached me at an Australian titles up in sydney and said would i be interested in taking over from him yep. as the australian importer of gas gas wow and, okay and that's when things got serious that would have really helped <laughs> yes
1: uh, I, I, and across the years i don't think there's a brand of bike you wouldn't have touched like pretty much there's been you, i was going through the hell team website archives and just the amount of brands you, you've had over the years is pretty like it's almost all of them
0: yeah, it was a natural progression in a lot lots of areas. Once I got gas gas, because Chisper and Scorpa had fallen over, then I really got serious about doing it full time as a business. And yeah. and then I thought of I did that thing where I went, I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket. I've been burnt twice now. So yep. I need more than one brand. And Australia's such a little market that I thought yeah. I need something as well as gas gas. So Jodagas came along in 2012, so I went and approached Pibba, the owner, who was one of the original GasGas owners, and secured Jodagas. So I had two brands, which was pretty cool. And then a little bit further on, you could see Jodagas was never going to be a big brand. They were keeping things fairly boutique. He didn't want to produce big numbers. So I was like, what else can I do? So about 20, I suppose a year or two later... Ossa turned up and that looked like a really exciting bike. They were trying to do some really interesting things with the fuel injection and lots of new stuff on the bike. So I went and approached them at the big motorcycle show in Milan and thought I'd done the deal with them, but that fell through. And that was one of the best things that ever happened in hindsight, because that company ended up having so many problems. So that was good. And then when Gas Gas sort of got into trouble around 2015. They were having financial woes. I was like, oh, here we go again. So at that time, both Vertigo and TRS were kicking off. So I approached both of those companies and went over to Spain and saw them and met everyone involved and thought, I've got to get one of these. So I'll end up at least having one brand. Because if gas gas folds, I need something. Yes. And I got Vertigo and I got TRS and Gas Gas <laughs> survived. Oh my God. <laughs> so, so I, I ended up types. having three brands and it it was too much. I couldn't yeah. really supply the support that I wanted to do because that's been part of the way I want to run a business is run it really well for all the customers, for all the riders. And I didn't I felt like I was spreading myself too thin with three brands. So
1: can I so, just ask a question mm. on the the TRS and Vertigo? Because those two appear to have lasted where GISPA, Yodagas, Ossa, other brands haven't. Mm. What do you think the difference is with those versus the earlier attempts to create more trials brands? Because is it purely a financial leverage, the way the companies are run, or is there other reasons from the the brand, the customer experience, the quality of the product? that you know, is the have you got any observations on why those two maybe seem to be sticking around when others haven't?
0: I think quite a lot of people learnt a very big lesson from Ossa And I think Ossa kudos to them for trying some really different things and for really having a go and trying to build a really interesting new technology bike. Yeah. But when you start a company like that and you make big bold moves you need some space to get it right. And I think they went to market probably too early. I think they probably were running a bit short of funds and had to release that bike. And there was a raft of problems and I don't think they had the resources to back up all the warranty claims and the changes that were needed and all that. So I think the people that came after them, as in Vertigo and TRS, got a really big lesson and went, "Mm, we've got to be a little bit more thoughtful about how we build our bike the trs is absolutely superb and vertigo was fed if my dealings with vertigo they were absolutely fantastic too but they both have some substantial business acumen behind them
1: got it yeah okay yeah yeah i think that's a fair call we briefly interrupt this conversation to remind you that this episode is sponsored by gas gas The new 2022 bikes have arrived. The latest generation of the TXT racing bikes are available in 125, 250, and 300cc capacities. While stocks last, there are $1,500 factory rebates available on all remaining 2021 stock. This even includes the GP models, making these bikes sensational value. Please contact your local GasGas dealer. Now back to our conversation. Did I'm just wondering, like... At this point, though, you're talking about being overwhelmed with too many brands because you can't quite provide the quality of service. It's nice to, I think, want to be so professional and be so customer-centric in the way you you deal with things that you have to put yourself in a position of, do I want quantity or do I want quality? And it's probably an interesting observation because there's a lot of people that, I don't know, have experiences with some motorcycle dealerships, uh, not necessarily in trials, but more generally and like the quality and the professionalism isn't always there. So I think that's a bold step from a a business perspective.
0: Well, I think when people buy a bike, it's not just the motorbike. I think your decision's made on what sort of support, whether you can get parts easily, how easy it is to work on. There's multiple reasons why you choose a brand and I feel the difference that I can offer is trying to give that support. And that was the thing that made me step back from vertigo was we're such a huge country in Australia. It's, you know, we're such a vast place. And when someone had a problem with the electronics or the fuel injection and I was sending my laptop in a road case around the country with. A4 sheets of explanations of how to reset yeah, throttle maps okay. and all that sort of stuff. It got quite hard. And I think they've solved that in the last couple of years. They've simplified all that system. But in the first couple of years, I was trying really hard to give everyone that support. I could give them with gas, gas, and TRS, but I was struggling to do that with the Vertigo. Yeah, yeah okay. And what has been your
1: experience with walking away from the sort of film production. Has it been a no regrets kind of situation or, or are you still dabbling in the, the film I, side? Totally.
0: I probably haven't worked on set much for, especially in the role that I used to do. I was called standby props. So what I was the jack of all trades on set when they needed a carpenter, a painter, a welder, someone to make this little rig, whatever. That was my job. Okay. So I didn't build the sets, I didn't buy any of the props or dress the sets, but when the filming was happening, I was in charge of the art department. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And you do the smoke and the wind and the rain and those sorts of soft special effects. (laughs) So (laughs) So that's where the name The Hell Team came from because- Really? It was one of those things where get those guys to blow this up or get those guys to do this on set. Ah. So that name came well before I was involved in motorbikes. I understand. Okay, cool. So I've stepped back from that on set work. I've still got a small business that I run on the side renting equipment to the film industry, but it's special effects equipment that I've had for years. So I rent smoke machines, rain bars, heat haze bars, turntables, things like that to the industry, but it it runs pretty easily and runs itself.
1: So what about the last couple of years? Because it sounds like you've you, you, <laughs> COVID's thrown every business into disruption, and no industry is without challenges to its supply chain. So, just take me through the last couple of years. What's it, what's it been like from your perspective, and the trials, supply chain businesses, and you know everything involved with our sport. Yeah,
0: the whole COVID thing has been a real topsy turvy thing for the motorcycle industry. At first, everything just died and went really quiet. And then suddenly everyone realized, oh, we're stuck. I'm going to start working on my old bike. That last two years of COVID has been really interesting because at first everything got really quiet, but then it just went crazy. We just, any secondhand bike we had, we would sell in two minutes. Everyone was buying equipment, trying to fix their bikes, trying to ride while they couldn't work. So, It was really busy. I feel sorry for a lot of people whose industries went down the tube, but the motorcycle industry just boomed. But then given a bit more time, given another six months, we couldn't get anything. So couldn't get clothing, couldn't get hard parts, couldn't get bikes. And talking to some of the manufacturers, I was talking to uh, Mark Aranio from TRS, and he was really struggling because he couldn't get things like swing arms he couldn't get major components wow and the people who cast them couldn't get raw materials so oh my god it, okay it went all the way down the chain especially the last couple of months you know you look on our website and there's big holes in the clothing and the helmets and things like that and that is because we just can't purchase them they're just not available wow uh, are
1: these Is, are you optimistic about these kinks ironing out or are there, are they still likely to be with us for a couple of, you know, months?
0: I think it'll take a few months. The other thing that's difficult is freight. Globally, freight's in a uh, really tough position because there's nowhere near as many airline movements around the world. And that's where a lot of air freight gets moved. So all that air freight's been moved to sea freight and, you know, things, container shortages and, I mean, things that would normally take us probably 36, 40 days to get from Spain to Australia, and now taking 80, 100, 120 days yeah. for the same trip. So, yeah, it's slow.
1: Oh, God. Because no, no, you mentioned there you, your bikes were getting snapped up. You've had one of these initiatives for a little while now to bring in containers of second-hand bikes so you've obviously got someone overseas purchasing them for you or you're going over yourself and then you're sending them back in a container load to sell here you know obviously there's a bit of work involved in that but they seem to sell so quickly every time you put them up on the website there's no shortage of people buying them at will here
0: there's a huge want for trials bikes in australia and that's i think to do with hard enduro and recreational riding rather than competition trials i look at the people who ring and talk to me about wanting a trials bike, and it's probably only twenty or thirty percent that are trials people that have have competed in trials. The rest of them are all people who want to upskill for hard enduro, or they want to improve their riding for trail riding or trial. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So,
1: I'll what because that's a line of inquiry I did have with this conversation, and that was you must be dealing with a lot of people that are interested in exploring the sport so they're ringing you and going where do i start you know what what do you say to them and it sounds like there is much people that aren't involved in the sport of trials how do you know and maybe how how do we convert them into the sport is there anything that you've got any observations on how we could get that 70 percent that are just doing it to upskill into the actual sport i think
0: there's a massive hole in the young people coming up through trials, because there's not a lot of small bikes available anymore, we have this incredible thing that's happened in the last 10 years with electric bikes, which have been fabulous. Osset, TRS, there's, and Beta, and there's lots of different small electric bikes now, but those 50 and 80cc petrol bikes, that real transition to the 125 have almost completely disappeared. Right. And gas Gas have stopped making their 80 and you don't see but you don't see a lot of kids bikes available at any time of the year these days and that's really stopped that pathway for young kids into the sport but i think that there's a lot of there's a lot of people who are in their 20s and 30s and whatever who are attracted to trials because they see it as a easier and cheaper alternative for some off-road motorcycle sport or just recreation and that's where those second hand bikes come in people want to spend two or three thousand dollars on a bike they don't want to spend ten thousand dollars on a bike Yep. so if they can get on a bike and try the sport they're willing to dip in if it's not too expensive so they're just but there needs to be those bikes around and that's what got me importing them i was going to spain and seeing the price i could buy secondhand bikes in spain and realizing i could get 25 30 bikes in a 20 foot container and get them over here and if I sold them at a reasonable price, there was a, a market and it gets people into the sport.
1: Yeah, uh, that's the thing. It's It definitely is needed. There's no shortage of people looking at that, that cheaper price point, but there's just not many bikes available. It tends to be that they end up in sheds somewhere rather than sold back to the next rider that could buy them. Yeah. So we've got a great habit of collecting bikes in this country, I think.
0: Yeah. And when they're only a $2,000 bike, people don't have that financial pressure to sell them. They can tuck okay. them away in a shed and leave them there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what would be your advice? Let's say you, you spoke to one more of the 30%, so they're not interested in just buying a bike and, and, and riding by themselves, but actually want to get into the sport of trials. What's your advice? Like, how do Because you, you must be dealing with people like this is part of your job all the time. How do you tell people you know where to start? What's your advice? Yeah,
0: I think a lot of people are a bit wary of competing because they see – other forms of sport and how structured it is and how competitive it is. But as you'd know, being inv- heavily involved in a club, we're such a social sport. It's so easy to just rock up at a trials day and everyone wants to talk to you. No one's putting any pressure on you. You can jump on your bike and the guy next to you will give you a few pointers. And it's a really easy transition from a social ride to a competitive ride. There's nowhere near the pressure of a motocross or an enduro or a road race. So, I'm, I'm always encouraging people to just come along, and they might be a little bit scared and go, "Oh, I'm not ready yet. I need to practice a little bit more." And I was, I'm always like, "You don't need to practice. Just come along. There's an easy line." Yeah, absolutely.
1: And if you, this is one of the things I'm I regularly speak to people about is I see riders that come and they just ride socially, and then I see riders that come and compete, and the rate of the appreciation of skills for someone that actually competes is amazing because they're forced. To ride over obstacles and in directions that they wouldn't have necessarily chosen just if they were only pottering about under their own steam, because someone set a section for them. Whereas now, if you're just riding around, you don't really get that same uplift. I find. Yeah, that's my observation.
0: You, you definitely don't improve social riding the way you do if you as you compete. You're exactly right, David. Because if you go into a section, you have to follow the tapes, and you don't realise when you're social riding how much you are in control rather than the tapes being in control
1: (laughs) so someone has come to you paul and said i want to get started so you've given them a first bike you've given them helmets you've given them boots you've got them kitted out what is the likelihood that they're going to stick around because i imagine you've also had the opportunity to see people come and go through the sport and my observation from trials is you've got people that are just like journeyman that they that's all they're going to do if there's a trial they'll attend it uh, but then you see people come they'll do it for a few years and then they'll depart uh, i just wonder what's been your observation on people ebbing and flowing throughout the sport
0: yeah and i think there's always going to be people who get involved because it looks easier than it is it's a really difficult and complicated sport to do well i know from coming into it at later in my life being a motorcyclist all my life but not really doing trials competition until after I hit forty, it is bloody hard <laughs> to be good at it. It is really difficult, and I think that turns some people off. They think they're going to suddenly be in B grade, and you're not. You have to put in a lot of effort and a lot of time, but it's really well rewarding if you do put the time in. Yeah, and I think the thing that clubs always have to keep at their you know forefront of their mind is to make the entry level pretty easy. You've got to try and have it so people don't get put off because they get beaten up the first couple of trials that they do. I think our entry-level lines have got to be really achievable. And then if people want to progress to harder stuff, they have the opportunity to move up through the grades, but you've got to make it an enjoyable day for them. And there's also people that have been writing trials for 20, 30, 40 years who just want that easy day out. So give them the opportunity, give them an easy line, give them a social day, and then if they want to step it up and make it harder, it's there for them if they choose.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So my observation, I came into the sport at 40 and it's about three years since I've been involved with it and I've just put my yellow plate on now. And that's been with a, a yellow plate for the uninitiated B grade. That's two or three levels down from the top in this country. But yeah, it, it's it was it's taken a bit of time to get to that point where I'm like, okay, I think I'm comfortable now and also a lot of advice on speaking to people on the podcast has been not to push it not to progress too far too early take your time so i've also had that ringing in my ear as i've been thinking about when i should move grades yeah yeah, it's a challenge Yep, but it is good fun i i I won't lie
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's awesome fun and it's one of those great things apart from just the riding it's a they're great bikes to work on a trials bike is such a simple easy bike to learn on yeah so if you've got. If you've got the slightest little bit of mechanical inkling, it's a fantastic thing to tinker with. Yeah. So there it's, and even if you haven't, it's not daunting. So
1: I came into the sport not really having a good mechanical skill set. And that was the thing that daunted me the most was I've got to maintain these bikes. But over the three years, I'm like, Oh my God, I was worried about nothing. Like it's uh, between phone calls and friends you make at the club, anything that's required a bit more extra effort. I've just, it's been, I've been able to get people to help me or I've, been able to take it to a dealer or whatever but yeah. most of the stuff i do myself yeah. and it's pretty straightforward
0: i spend so much time on the phone every day helping people solve mechanical problems with their trials bikes but i love that i love that thing of like people who are a little bit scared of it can you can actually get in and have a crack on a trials bike and it's an easy thing to work on if you want to learn how to do a gearbox or change your piston in your bike or do a top end you couldn't pick a better bike to learn on they're easy to, they're light they're small They're simple, they're perfect. And I love that thing about trials bikes where it's stripped down simplicity. There's nothing on them that's superfluous. They're really clean, simple, easy bikes. Yeah. What about, because you've supported not only
1: this podcast, but you've also supported a lot of Australia's top riders as well, helping them overseas and the TDN and with various world rounds, you're really committed to promoting the sport here in Australia and also supporting our top riders. That Thank you on behalf of the trials community, firstly. There, there must be a lot that goes into sort of making all that happen, helping like getting bikes arranged for riders overseas and things like that it must be a bit of work
0: yeah but it's that thing you build relationships with people and they become your friends it's not just someone you sponsor i feel like i've got people that now that i've just known for a long time like Kyle Middleton who's multiple times australian champion yeah. we've been and his father Ross we've been great mates for years and years and it's gone way beyond the sponsorship arrangement and Jack Field and Rihanna, who has done trial shows all around the country and now works all around the world doing stunt doubling for Vin Diesel and all sorts of Hollywood stars. And I they're like my surrogate children now. Yeah. So you get as much out of it as you put into it, that's for sure.
1: We know that the trials isn't going to be the biggest sport ever, but I wouldn't mind your musings on the future of the sport in the sort of short and medium term and we seem to be recognized now as the place to go for hard enduro riders that want to upskill but and that's bringing a lot of people into the sport of trials but with the developments at the world rounds and things like that i'd appreciate maybe just your musings on on the sport and and where you think it can go we've had bernie schreiber on the podcast and he's had some suggestions that less is more i don't want to put exactly words in bernie's mouth but the general census was maybe taking stuff away from the top flight of the sport to make it more of a level pegging might might add something we've had mike rapley on who, who's also said that it's, it's really a pointy pyramid with just a couple of guys at the top and we've had jake miller saying that we need to do more about promotions i'd just be interested in your thoughts around our sport going forward and what observations you have
0: i'm Constantly thinking about this, and it's such a complex problem. The top end of the sport is such a um, fantastic show, both indoor and outdoor, and the level of riding has just gone ahead in leaps and bounds. You know, the level that Tony Bowe and Adam Raga and the top riders are now is absolutely amazing, and you can't really pull that back. You can't go, We're going to make that simpler. We still need that top flight competition. But the base rider still is the base rider. We're still starting from ground zero. It's just that difference between ground zero and the top riders now is this chasm that we have to try and fill. I think one of the biggest things we have a problem with is that we need so many volunteers per rider. You'd know on a club level, if you've got 40 riders, you almost need 40 volunteers to run a observed trial. So that's something that we're all trying to find solutions for. I mean, to find a way of riders being able to score each other, however we do that, I think is something we all seriously need to have a look at, because especially coming from big towns like you do from Melbourne, or I am from Sydney, to find volunteers is incredibly difficult. It's yeah. easier when you're in a, a rural community, yeah, because you can get that rural community behind you and people don't have as much recreational choice. But in a big city, there's so many things that people can do on their weekends to go and stand out in the bush for two days and observe a trial. To find those people is really hard. So some way we've got to find of being able to score each other. And I think we also need to find, bend the sport a little bit to do other things. The Scott trial in England where it's a trial, but it's also timed. I yep. think has got some, that is a fantastic thing. And we're not allowed to do that in Australia. We can't run that sort of time speed sport as a trial. Okay. Um, yep. yeah. And I can just see in the future, we're going to end up with things that with more and more things that are a bit of this and a bit of that, like hard enduro was enduro and trials welded together. And I think we're going to end up with mount mountain biking and trials that. Those sorts of bikes are getting closer and closer together, so we'll end up with new sports <laughs> involving yes. that. Yeah. yeah.
1: That chasm between the top flight and the Clubman rider at a local event, uh, do you think it detracts or puts people off if they watch Tony Bow and they just see his amazing highlights? And then do you think that takes people away from the sport or brings people
0: to the sport? Mm. It probably takes more people away from the sport. But if you go to any trial, you don't just see the top rider, you see all the other riders as well. So anybody who spectates at an Australian trial, you're getting a really good
1: cross-section of riders. Yeah. I just
0: think we need to make that entry level still entry level. Yeah. Still base level.
1: Yeah. And we need more people to spectate events, to expose themselves to the actual event themselves, not just watch it online, but actually go to an event, get the vibe of it. Because I think there's a lot about that social... Uh, side of it as well that gets lost if you're just watching YouTube footage, even if it is of a, a
0: local trial, yep. you miss all that camaraderie yep. and the, the rest of it. And there's no money in trials. Yep. But the base level is it's very hard to promote when there's not a lot of money. And I know for me to advertise, if I wanted to run a magazine ad, I'm having to put in a few thousand dollars per issue to run an, an ad in a magazine. And that builds up when you're looking at four or five different magazines over the year and advertising monthly and we don't sell enough product. Even on a global scale, it's very hard. Jake Miller did a fantastic job, I think, trying to drag the world competition into the 21st century with some interesting things. Not all of them worked, but he gave it a really good shake.
1: Yeah, that's it. If, if we tried stuff and failed, at least you tried, I suppose that's, and not all of it was a failure. A lot of it was a success and a lot of people have got fond memories of it. So yeah, absolutely. So one of the things, Paul, when we were discussing all the various bikes that you've dealt with over the time has been the various brands you've touched. But what about this push towards electric bikes? Because we, I think we see that there is a sort of. At least from an automobile perspective, there's a definite growth in that direction. There's only really, at the present time, the electric motion. What's your thoughts on the the electric side of trials bikes and the future of those?
0: I'm really surprised that a lot of the other major manufacturers have not jumped on the electric bandwagon much more seriously than they have, because I think we really need to think about our future burning fossil fuels, and we've all seen that with COP in the last two weeks, there's some really big push because climate change is a serious subject. And I think we all need to seriously think about that uh, as our future as well. Whether you agree that the bike's going to be better or worse, I don't think has to come into it. We need to transfer away from fossil fuels at some stage in our future. Electric motion have done some great things in the last few years with the bike. Gas, 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 built a fantastic electric bike the bike that they, the txte was amazing i bought a handful of them into the country yeah because that's all that gas gas would give me i pushed them really hard for bikes and ended up getting half a dozen and they so i've actually they were fabulous one
1: there's one of the guys at our club has them and has one of them and it's it is an amazing bike and i even heard kyle, an interview with kyle middleton say it might be the best bike going around for anyone up to sort of B grade because of the, just how effortless it delivers its power and how well refined it was for, you know, early generation electric bike, it was really well regarded.
0: Just that thing where they put the electric drive, basically where the crank was in the existing crankcase. So the drive went through the diaphragm clutch and went through the six speed gearbox. So it, it rode like a normal bike. And I think the thing that has always lacked with electric bikes is you don't have this the constantly spinning motor. So you don't have that gyroscopic effect. You'd know if you practice in your garage on your bike, if your bike's turned off, it's so much harder to balance than if your bike's turned on. Because when your bike's turned on, you've got that spinning mass, that inertia that works gyroscopically and helps keep you upright. So with an electric bike, whenever you used to the first generation electric motions and mecha technos and different things, as soon as you shut off, the motor stopped spinning. But with the gas gas, that motor constantly spun and there was a clutch and you also had the audible sound of the gears spinning. So you could hear where your revs were, which makes a massive difference. You don't realize how much you relied on that audible input to know exactly where you were. And without that, it's so much harder to ride. So... I think the Gas Gas Electric was a fantastic bike, and I'm interested to see if KTM will resurrect it. It's obviously disappeared off their menu for the last couple of years, but maybe they're working on it behind the scenes and it'll resurface at some stage.
1: Yeah, you would think it would. I imagine KTM, as big an organization as they are, are well aware of the pressures across all the range, not just trials, to push all motorcycles to alternatives. So I imagine. It's something that they're looking into. I did see some early images of a dragonfly,
0: Mecha Techno. What do you know of that? The gentleman behind Mecha Techno, Geordie Miller, is a, a really Fabulous guy who started, who resurrected the Mecha Techno name and started building kids electric trials bikes. And then he built a couple of prototypes and, and entered a Mecha Techno Dragonfly in the Trial E Championship. And he was pretty much ready to release that for full production a couple of years ago. A few things happened with battery technology that made them hang off and make some changes. And then COVID happened. And I'm really not sure where the project is now, but I I would be, knowing him, I'd be pretty confident that it will resurface at some stage. I know one of the other big brands that I import are looking at electric bike at the moment. I can't say more than that, but they're well down the pathway of looking at electric bike and and that gas gas. Hopefully I will. I'll, we'll see some more things come to market in the next couple of years. Oh, that would be good.
1: That would be good.
0: One of the things, Paul, that I've seen you do,
1: and it's pretty much you and you only, off your own bat, is go down the pathway of arranging Australian design rule compliance for our imported trials bikes so we can be getting them road registered. That doesn't strike me as a small task. That sounds like a piece of work. What, why? Firstly, why have you done that? What's the benefit of, of us having road registered trials bikes?
0: I think you've always got to look back and learn from history, not probably not sometimes always copy history. But the biggest part, uh, the, the most trials bikes that were sold in Australia were during the 70s when the TY 80s and TLR Hondas were around and they were road registrable. And I think it was that thing where people could use them for much more than just a competition trials bike those bikes were an everyman's bike. They were used on farms. They were used in so many different ways. And obviously those bikes were much more suitable as an everyman's bike too. But I think looking forward, the way to get people into trials is give them opportunities of places to ride. At the moment, when you have an unregistered bike, you're so limited as to where you can ride that bike and that holds our sport back. So if people can get on a trials bike and maybe put the bigger tank and seat on it, or maybe not, but maybe just be able to take it to that bit of crown land around the corner or somewhere where they can ride it, or stick it on the back of their caravan and use it to ride into town when they're staying at a campsite, I think that it's a way to get people on trials bikes that we really, I feel like I really need to do. I, I tried to do it first with Scorpa with their four-stroke SYF and got way down the track, was almost ready to have it done, had done all the engineering tests, brake tests, pollution tests. And then the engineer said to me, oh, the chassis numbers on the head stem are smaller than eight millimeters. They need to be a minimum of eight millimeters tall. Oh, God. And they were seven millimeters tall. So I contacted Scorpion, and said, any chance you could stamp these slightly bigger? And they said, if you pay for the stamping machine, (laughs) which was like $25,000.
1: Oh my God. So
0: I ended up at the last minute not being able to get the bike through. But since then, I've got the Gas Gas Contact road registered. And then of course, KTM dropped it. And now I have just got the TRS models all compliant. And our first shipment of the TRSs that will be able to be road registered should be here this month. Oh, my God. That's awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. And, and I learned by my previous experiences. So, it took us the best part of two years. But every single TRS model will be able to be road registered that we bring not in. Just not just the x which is the one Not, not the, just the, the x So, that's the yeah. first ones I'm bringing in as road registered. But the RRs, the R's, everything will be able to be road registered.
1: Oh my god, that's awesome! Yep. So, um, that'll really open up some opportunities for people, especially in New South Wales, where they w- Victoria's got slightly different rules around recreational registration, which are less stringent to be able to ride your bike on Crown land. Yeah, but still, it, it's a good move because I think it gives people options. Yeah, absolutely. I hope I
0: haven't made a mistake, but I really feel like it'll be it'll be a good thing for our sport. Absolutely,
1: Paul. I want to wrap up with some final questions, so. What is one of the things you wish you would have known before you started writing trials?
0: That I wish I would have known? Mm, I don't think, I think I've got everything I wanted from trials. It's been really positive. I I probably thought it was going to be easier than it was. I was probably the same as you, David. I started competing when I was around 40 and got, to a low B-grade level, and now I've slid back (laughs) again. (laughs) Now I'm over 60. (laughs) But, yeah, I would encourage anyone to get into it. I think what we learn both socially and technically, riding-wise, you can't learn anywhere else. It's fantastic. Yeah.
1: What's been your biggest challenge? Maybe it's riding, maybe it's business, but what has been your biggest challenge and what did you learn from it?
0: The biggest challenge has definitely been working with companies overseas where you feel you're at such a long arm's length from being able to get anything done. It's taken me a long time to learn because I wasn't an importer. I wasn't a bike salesman. I wasn't any of those things I've had to learn on the fly. Yeah. It's been incredibly satisfying and I wish I'd done it 20 years earlier. (laughs) What advice
1: would you give to someone who is thinking of starting trials? I think we've covered this earlier in the chat, haven't we? Mm-hmm.
0: But uh, I think the simplest thing is to join a club and get a bike. Even if it's a really cheap, if it's a dunger, but just get out there and enjoy the club atmosphere and don't be scared of going to a competition because it'll make you a better rider and it, you'll also get so many more things out of it than just riding.
1: Okay. Who or what have been some of the most memorable things that have helped you along the way?
0: Yeah. Probably the most memorable, I think, is actually meeting Jordi Teres. Yeah. I've met many people in Spain involved in the industry, and there's been some incredible people. But to see the passion that man has for his brand and the sport still after a lifetime in it is really inspiring. Like the first time I met him, I was taken to his house by Mark Ragno who is, again, another incredibly inspiring guy who's at TRS. But sitting down with Geordie and him showing me the first drawings and prototype of the TRS and just seeing this incredible enthusiasm for it that still exists yeah. every time you meet him, he is just so deep into that bike. It is his life, his passion. It's really inspiring to see someone like that.
1: Yeah. Okay. And what's one myth about trials you think we should debunk? That it's easy. (laughs) (laughs) Enough said. Yes.
0: That it's slow, so it must be easy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Paul, it's been an absolute treat. I know it's taken us a little while to have this conversation, but I'm so glad we finally got it done. It's great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you uh, on behalf of our listeners for supporting the podcast as much as you have and being our first sponsor. It's gone a long way to make this project as sustainable as we can make it. And thank you for me as well, for all the help you've provided me in uh, my journey into the sport as well and those phone calls for technical support and whatnot I've rung you about. So thank you. (laughs) I mean, I
0: just thank you so much for the podcast. It's so great to listen to and it's one of those fantastic things that lasts a long time, people in 10, 20 years' time will still be opening up you know, your first podcast and listening to it and going, oh, I need to listen to the second one, to the third one. It's got a real legacy for the sport. It's not just this week. It, it just really, yeah, it's fantastic, David. Thanks so much.
1: No, my pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Cheers. Okay, ciao. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Trials Australia podcast. This episode was brought to you by Vertigo. Experience and passion define the basis of the Vertigo brand. Vertigo grew from an idea creating a bike to match the passion that existed within the team. Despite being the youngest of the trials brands, they have now had years of consistent year-on-year growth and have proven themselves at the dizzying heights of trial GP, at the harsh conditions of the Scottish six-day, and there is also a strong groundswell of representation around the globe amongst your everyday club riders. Vertigo set themselves apart by having the most technically advanced bike as well as the most customizable. Vertigo have made a significant announcement with the launch of their new Nitro models. Every few years, Vertigo do these updates and the Nitro is a significant update for 2022. There is a new frame, new silencer design, new fuel tank, water pump, bash plate, rear brake system, and a redistribution of the electrical components. They'll be available around late November and early December and prices will be 11350 Australian dollars for the two hundred, two hundred 250, and 300cc capacities. Please visit vertigoracing.com.au for all the details of the new model. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Links and show notes can be found at trials.com.au. There you'll find how to connect with us on all the various platforms. If you want to get in touch, you can also send us an email via podcast at trials.com.au. And if you like this show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts.